Hello and welcome to another episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini and this time we're going to talk about some of the legal issues that parents of special needs children can face. When you have a child with special needs, physical disabilities, developmental disabilities, or any combination of those, the range of concerns that can come up tends to make you primarily want to focus only on the immediate, and maybe next year, especially if you have school-aged children. But there are matters of the future that we also need to consider. What happens when our special needs kids reach adulthood? What happens when we are no longer able to take care of them? Where will they live? How will they handle themselves and their finances? And how do you make sure they're going to be cared for if they can't do it themselves? As parents, we owe it to our kids to have a handle on this situation anyhow. But when special needs children are involved, the requirements can be even more complex. Well, my guest this episode is Dan Blau, an attorney in Grand Rapids, Michigan, who specializes in legal issues for adults with disabilities and for parents of children with disabilities and special needs. I talk with Dan about a number of issues that parents of special needs children need to know about, what kind of laws exist to provide help, whether or not you need a lawyer to handle those legal issues, and how to find a lawyer when you're ready. The first thing I asked Dan about, though, was how he became interested in advocacy for people with disabilities and special needs. This is an area of law that I've been interested in for quite a few years. I took a fairly unusual career path. I went to law school at Valparaiso University, and uh, uh, my first job out of uh, school was related to legal aid, and I did a lot of disability and special needs uh, uh, work with uh, low-income people with disabilities as part of a legal aid office in Illinois, Mm -hmm. and then I... uh, moved back to Michigan where I had grown up and uh, worked at Legal Aid a little while here in uh, Grand Rapids. But it's kind of interesting. The the cases that were the most satisfying had to do with uh, Social Security disability and helping people who have lifelong disabilities. So I I worked as an administrator with the pro bono system in Legal Aid and then went off and became the director of an ARC, which is at that time, it was the Association for Retarded Citizens. Mm. Now they just call it the ARC. Right. And it uh, is an advocacy group that handles all kinds of issues when you're dealing with uh, people with cognitive impairments. And I did that for five years. And after doing that, uh, the, the topic that really came up over and over was how do you create housing for people with disabilities mm-hmm. and uh, creative housing that's not necessarily just group homes. And I did that under another nonprofit called Hope Network in Grand Rapids Mm -hmm. uh, for several years. And then I dusted off my law degree and went back into private practice. And uh, since 1999, I've been working on uh, doing special needs trusts and disability planning for families when they have kids with disabilities. I work more with younger families uh, with uh, children with disabilities than I do with uh, elder law. Mm. But, you know, there's a connection between the elder law community and the special needs disability community of, of advocacy, mm-hmm. because some of the same concepts apply to both populations. So uh, that's kind of how I got here. I've been working in private practice, and I have a partner named uh, Sarah Kirkpatrick who works with me. And what we do is uh, help families do wills and trusts and especially special needs trusts when mm-hmm. they have a child with disability. Yeah, and there is a, a big need for that. A lot of people don't uh, realize it because when you have a special needs child, uh, 
you're immediately focused right on the here and now, and it's hard to think forward, you know, to the, what the future is going to be like. That's true. Uh, you know, and I think sometimes my experience with families is that when their children are still in special education and they've sort of got a panoply of services related to special ed, they, they learn that system, but sometimes they don't uh, uh, grasp what it's going to take to connect to the adult service system once they get out of special education. Mm-hmm. And how is that paid for and how, what kind of public benefits should they be uh, preserving so that they can mix together the public benefits with their private funds in a way that really enhances their their child's quality of life. Right. And that's what we do with trusts is we help families organize private money in a way that doesn't jeopardize the public benefits. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah, we had a, uh, a friend of mine, I wanted to tell you this story, a friend of mine uh, many, many, many years ago and in another state altogether had been uh, going to college to uh, go into social work and she was interning at uh, an assistive care facility, working with the social workers on staff there. And she told me the story that one day they had this patient who uh, was a teenager and was uh, uh, severely disabled and completely incapable of caring for himself. And on this particular day, the social worker had called in the family because um, they wanted to know what was going to happen because when the child turned 18 the state where they were living wasn't going to pay for them to be in the assistive care facility anymore. And uh, this uh, child had an older brother and an older sister as well as parents, and the sister and brother had their own families. And uh, so they asked the the family, you know, uh, have you thought about the future for your child? And the mother said, oh, yes, it's all settled. The father and I are going to sell our house and move to Florida, and our son's going to take turns living with his sister and brother. And uh, the sister and brother said, well, we've never heard of this before. <laughs> and yeah. so it got into quite a unfortunate, uh, I guess, a screaming match. And then they just all stormed out of the facility. And so it it's, can be a surprise sometimes, you know, when uh, people aren't uh, thinking about what they're going to do for the future as far as uh, their children. That's true. I've worked with families. I had a client last year. The mom was 96. Mm and was still caring for a disabled son, only child, who was in his 60s. No. And hadn't really planned for what happens when mom is no longer around. Right. Uh, you know, the things are changing uh, uh, nationally and uh, in our culture, though. Uh, there's greater expectation now, especially because of special ed and some of the services that have been available when somebody's younger is the expectations are a little higher that somehow there's going to be the right kind of supportive environment outside the family. Mm-hmm. And um, and you're really not doing your child any favors by just uh, assuming that they're just going to always keep living with you. It's In most cases, not every case, uh, uh, the, the child can start to thrive and start to grow if they get a little bit out from under the wing of the parents. And, mm-hmm. But how do you do that and still provide the adequate protection that they may need? Right. So, so that's where that's he... where you have to do, you know, all kinds of individual planning. In special ed, there's this concept of individual education plans, IEPs. But when you get to the adult service system, once they're out of education, there's a very similar planning tool called an individual plan of service. It's called something different in each state, I suppose. But mm-hmm. 
Uh, it can be either called a person-centered plan or an individual service plan. Those things are, are really uh, valuable to kind of lay out what the options are and to figure out how the funding is going to work for uh, providing what they need. You know, most families can't just do it with private funds. Mm-hmm. If you have a child with quite severe impairments, uh, you know, some parents are shocked, and some aren't, <laughs> about how expensive it's going to be to provide the right kind of uh, care and support. Oh, yeah, definitely. And you just can't do it often with uh, private funds alone unless you're extremely wealthy. Mm-hmm. So you have to start to learn how the Medicaid system works and how to uh, arrange your, your private funds in a way that doesn't jeopardize Medicaid. Right. That's what we do with special needs trusts. That's great. Yeah, because you can't depend upon winning the lottery every that's, time. That's true. Yeah. Now, um, as far as uh, say trusts and wills and things like that, um, with a family with a special needs child, are there going to be different laws that need to be considered? And should there be more specific language as far as uh, exactly what's going to happen and where? Yes. Uh, the You know, the typical estate planning world will first try to decide whether the parents want to do simple wills or whether they want to do a living trust for themselves as a way to plan what will happen with their estate, especially when the last parent passes away. And some of that is is general, generic estate planning uh, that many, many lawyers do. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the piece that's more specific as to when you have a child with disabilities is this concept of special needs trust. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, no matter what the parents choose, simple will versus a living trust that they may do themselves, they have to make sure that whatever does get distributed to the child with disabilities doesn't go directly into the pocket of the child with disabilities. You know, if they're going to be needing Medicaid, they can't have more than $2,000 of countable assets in, uh, in their pocket and still get Medicaid. And Medicaid pays for so many of these community mental health services. Mm-hmm. So they have to set up a special way to hold the funds that the child with disabilities would get, and that's called a special needs trust. Ah, okay. And a special needs trust has some very specific language that has to be in it to keep it from being a countable asset. primary one is that you have to give the trustee the person who's in charge of that pot of money, other than the person with the disability, uh, they have to give that trustee sole and absolute discretion over how to spend that pot of money. Ah. That means the person with a disability can't just reach into that pot of money and get funds whenever they want it. Right. You have to ha- have a trusted trustee, which sometimes can be an individual, like a sibling of the person with a disability, or it can be a corporate trustee, such as a bank trust department, wow. who's in charge of deciding how to use those funds for the benefit of the person with a disability. And so you give discretion to the trustee, and you make it so that that trust is not a countable asset when they figure out if they're eligible for Medicaid or SSI. Wow, that's a, and, lot, uh, a lot of involvement there. There is, and you have to, there's a lot to think through as to who the trustee should be. You know, just as in your example where the parents just assumed that the siblings would take their brother uh, in a creating a special needs trust, sometimes parents will just assume 
that uh, the oldest daughter will be the trustee. Well, what if she doesn't feel capable of doing it? Mm-hmm. What if she moves to Europe? What if she uh, has a lot else going on in her life and she just doesn't have the ability to, to handle that? Well, you've got to set up some planning in that trust document as to who a successor might be so that if the person that you think might be able to do it uh, is suddenly not able to do it, mm-hmm. there's a built-in successor in the document, and you've planned ahead for who's going to have control over those funds for the benefit. The other big thing with the person with the, the, that the special needs trust entails is uh, all the expenditures out of that pot of money uh, for the person with a disability has to has to be for the sole benefit of that person. Right. It can't just be, you can't say, uh, here's a pot of money, Susie, you're the trustee of it, and Susie can't just use that money to have the entire family go to Tahiti. Right. I mean, they have to use it for the long haul for the benefit of the person with a disability Yeah. in ways that will not jeopardize their government benefits. Right. I mean, you always want to make sure, you always want to hope that your kids are going to spend the money honestly, but... <laughs> That's right. And sometimes, depending on the family dynamics, you'll have more accounting provisions in the trust document or more reporting requirements so that there's more than one set of eyes looking at how the money is spent. There's always a balancing act in that. You know, a lot of families that have trusted uh, relationships uh, don't want to be saddled with a lot of very formal trust accounting. It's a lot of red tape and a lot of expense. And so in many cases, you make those trust documents uh, have uh, fairly uh, simple accounting provisions. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you'll want to make it more formal and decide in the document who gets to see the reports as to how the money's being spent as a way of sort of having a check and balance in the Right. It all depends on the family dynamics. So there's not really a one-size-fit-all for these special needs trusts. Right. Um, it really does depend on the players and the needs and uh, the n- amount of money involved and so forth. Right. And so uh, a regular attorney who just handles ordinary family wills or trusts may not necessarily be able to answer all these questions or even think of all these uh, Yeah, over the last 20 years, I've talked to a lot of private lawyers, and a lot of lawyers want to help their family, their client, if they have a family member with disabilities. But what they don't sometimes want to learn is the the Medicaid rules. (laughs) Right. Well, (laughs) that's complex. How can that trustee spend the money properly so as not to jeopardize those government benefits? That's a fairly technical piece that... um, Many lawyers would rather have a specialist work on rather than just try to learn and stay up on all those Medicaid rules themselves. Right. And that's uh, another point I wanted to bring up, of course, is that we've seen a lot of these new uh, online services as well as uh, storefronts where you can purchase legal documents, including a do-it-yourself will or trust kit. But I don't think that is the kind of direction that you can go when you have uh, uh, special details for a special needs child. That could be true. You know, and, of course, some of the online uh, opportunities are more specific now. I mean, as the technology improves, there's mm-hmm. uh, you know, more chance of making those uh, documents accurate. But there's a lot of problems with the uh, living trust. Some lawyers disparagingly call them uh, 
trust mills sometimes. <laughs> they're people that are may not be attorneys who just have the paperwork and they try to help people fill out the paperwork without really doing the kind of independent analysis that might be needed to really right. balance all these factors. And it's hard uh, to go with a, a kit and make it fit for people with uh, special needs. Right, especially if you have questions and uh, when it comes to the Medicare aspect. Yes. And you want to make sure you're getting the right uh, choices made. That's for sure. You know, the thing that's so confusing for people is uh, to understand the public benefits and uh, how these private monies then would fit with those public benefits. Uh, just the distinction between Medicare and Medicaid is a very important distinction. Uh, Medicare is the kind of health program that persons who are retired are familiar with, of course. Some people with disabilities, even though they're younger, can get Medicare. But Medicare is not very uh, useful when it comes to paying for ongoing community mental health-related services for younger people with severe impairments. Mm -hmm. People with mental retardation, cerebral palsy, autism, people with developmental disabilities of that nature are mostly funded by Medicaid rather than Medicare. Right. And, of course, the rules for Medicaid are really completely different than the rules for Medicare. Right. That's confusing to people, and sometimes uh, they don't do the proper planning if they just go to a one-size-fit-all trust kit. Right. Now, when a, when a young person with disabilities turns 18, there's a, a question about whether or not the parents should petition a court for guardianship, uh, which you uh, mentioned in your brochure and probably on your website, too. And I was wondering, uh, what, what is the difference and what do people need to know about when it comes to that? Well, there are differences in, from state to state as to the guardianship laws. So I can't speak to other states. Mm -hmm. uh, but in general, in Michigan, for example, uh, a guardianship is a court process. Some families think that, well, I'm the parent. I'll automatically be the guardian when they turn 18, right? Mm -hmm. Well, no, you, it's not automatic. You have to petition the court mm. for the establishment of a guardianship. In Michigan, there's two kinds of guardianship. One for people with developmental disability. It has its own sets of rules and procedures. Mm -hmm. And then the other is for people with other legal incapacities that may not be developmental disabilities, such as schizophrenia, mental illness, other emotional. So you have to know those rules and how it works in your given state but it is a court process to become legal guardian. Mm. In Michigan, there's a presumption that you should go for the least restrictive option, and there's options for uh, limited or partial guardians. Um, but that's another whole uh, uh, area of the law that's quite confusing. Mm -hmm. One alternative to guardianships for some people with disabilities is for them to voluntarily sign a document called the power of attorney. Ah, okay. Where they are uh, voluntarily choosing someone to be their agent, to be their patient advocate, to be their helper. And uh, so then the big question that arises is, well, who can sign a power of attorney and who has to go through the court-appointed guardianship process? That's sort of a uh, difficult question, and right. uh, the laws in each state may be slightly different. In, in Michigan, there's been some recent cases that says that say that state that uh, 
the person signing a power of attorney has to be uh, legally competent to contract, to sign a contract, hmm. which means they have to understand the terms of what they're giving in that power of attorney. And then the question quickly becomes, especially for somebody with mental impairments, is do they understand what they're signing, and is it do they have the legal capacity to sign it? So right. Those are hard questions that have to be answered on an individual case basis. There's not a one-size-fit-all. Right. Okay, and then uh, speaking of the power of attorney, because I noticed that uh, a power of attorney can be used for a number of different things, so I was wondering if you just uh, talk about the whole idea of the power of attorney, how it works, and uh, what other areas of uh, mental health care in the future a power of attorney uh, can work for. Well, a power of attorney in Michigan, there's, they've uh, divided it into two main categories, a financial or durable general power of attorney mm-hmm. that will give somebody the authority to handle their financial affairs and even their uh, applications for certain government benefits and so forth. That's part of a general durable power of attorney that uh, can be drafted under the laws in Michigan. There's a separate health care power of attorney that Michigan has set out mm-hmm. that uh, it's really a lot like a living will, which is a, uh, a health care designation that some states have. It's kind of confusing. The word living will uh, that's used mm-hmm. in quite a few states is, is kind of confusing for people because that's really a designation of what you want in terms of end-of-life decisions. It's not ah, really okay. a will. Right. But... Uh, those kinds of uh, uh, documents uh, uh, in Michigan, we call it a health care power of attorney more than a living will. Mm-hmm. Although in Michigan, even some people have both. They have a health care power of attorney and they have a side document called a living will that they happen to call a living will that sets out their preferences for when they want the agent or patient advocate to be able to withdraw or withhold medical treatment. Mm-hmm at end of life and so forth. So again, it's a little bit complicated. You have to think through what you what the person can legally sign in terms of capacity and then what their wishes are. Mm-hmm. Sometimes with somebody who's quite high functioning, who understands that they want their parents to be their agent and help with medical decisions, will do a power of attorney for health care that says, and if my wishes are not clear, I designate my parent to be my the decider of what I get in terms of health care. Mm-hmm. And that tends to be honored by the health care community and uh, a way of providing somebody uh, with uh, a little more capacity to be able to help make those decisions. But okay. it's a case-by-case basis. Right. Okay. Um, there is another area, too, that uh, you help out with, and you mentioned something about that back at the beginning when you were talking about your background, and that is laws and legal issues regarding setting up supportive living opportunities in private homes as well as apartments or foster care homes uh, for individuals and also for groups. Uh, can you explain a little bit about those issues? And uh, Well, this is a growing area, and again, it's quite complex. Mm-hmm. If I were to sort of condense the history of housing arrangements for people with impairments, Mm -hmm. we went from the family doing it all back at the turn of the 1900s (laughs) to uh, the growth of state institutions Mm -hmm. 
uh, from 1900 to 1950, we grew a lot of big, scary institutions right. for people with both mental illness and people with developmental disability. Mm-hmm. Then you get to the 1980s, and you've got a much uh, needed uh, turn away from the big institutions to allowing the funding streams from the government to flow into the community. Sometimes they call that Medicaid waiver services, that mm-hmm. waive serving them in a big institution, and they start serving them closer into their own community using some of those government government dollars. But then you've got a, the growth of some new nonprofit agencies that uh, work with the government using those Medicaid dollars to provide uh, group homes that are sometimes licensed as foster care in some states. Mm-hmm. And that's another alternative. So now we're moving toward uh, smaller settings, uh, still licensed as foster care. What you've seen in the last mm, 10, 15 years is the evolution of a lot of these nonprofit corporations who want to help provide supportive living for people with uh, mild to severe impairments to do it in a more creative way and to use some almost a voucher approach of getting some of these Medicaid dollars into the pocket of the person with a disability so they can spend it in a setting that makes sense to them mm-hmm. rather than just rely on the big institutions or the six-pack group homes. Right. And now you've got a lot more creativity on the part of families and uh, emerging nonprofits to support people in homes of their choice, mm-hmm. not licensed as foster care necessarily, but as regular homes where they get to pick who they live with, if anybody, mm-hmm. and uh, where they can bring in some of these Medicaid dollars to help for the ongoing support into a, a regular house. And I said before at the beginning of the interview that uh, when I was the director of an ARC, I got a, a probably a call a month mm. from a family, and it would go something like this. Uh, we've got a son with Down syndrome. Uh, it, we really want to have him set up in the right supportive arrangement. We know it's probably in his best interest to not just live with us his entire life, but obviously we as a family want to help. I'll give you this house if you can support my son in this setting. Hmm. In other words, the brick and mortar was often the easiest part right. of getting you know, families and nonprofits and the community at large and even using some HUD uh, government money for the creation of affordable rental settings. Mm-hmm. To get that brick and mortar in place is is quite doable. Mm-hmm. But now, how do you coordinate the staff support in that setting once he lives there? Right. How do you pay for it? How do you blend together what they might get through Medicaid versus what they might get from a special needs trust? And uh, how do you make it so that it's got the right level of protection for the person, but it doesn't smother them with a lot of rules and regulations? How do you make it affordable? Because we don't have the resources in our society right now to pay for one-on-one staffing for somebody alone in their own house. It just doesn't work financially. So do you decide to get a roommate? Do you decide to have some live-in staff or how do you blend that all together in a way that makes sense for that particular person? Right. So that's what I did 
when I worked with an entity called Hope Network is I helped try to um, blend together the resources so that people could live in a home of their choice. Mm-hmm. That's great. And then, I mean, I can imagine that must be incredibly complicated, and that's probably why. Well, it can be. Yeah, yeah so that's because, why you've got to have a, a good lawyer or someone who really knows what they're doing. And I think there's a need for uh, families and nonprofits in any given community to be able to learn what each other are doing. Right. What I'm so frustrated with still in this day and age is that, you know, there's a lot of people with a lot of great ideas, but there's not a very good way to have a clearinghouse of information for them to go somewhere and and see who else is doing something of a similar nature. I had a call from somebody on the other side of the state the other day who said, we really want to do a co-op for our kids with disabilities where they would buy into a setting of their choice using these co-op principles. It's almost like a condo in a sense but it's a way of buying into some place where they know they're going to be able to coordinate the support staffing. You know, who has done that? And so they called me because they knew I had worked on that kind of stuff in the past. And they said, well, how can I get some templates, some examples? We don't want to reinvent the wheel. But there's, there needs to be somebody besides my law office that's helping provide that coordination of information. There needs to be sort of a central clearinghouse of, Housing information for families when they have an idea. How do they put the pieces together? Um, that's that's my uh, ambition right now is to figure out how to create a better clearinghouse and technical assistance center. Right. You know, it's a lot of these new emerging nonprofit organizations that want to help this way are all really founded by individual families that uh, have seen the need for creating something for their particular son or daughter. And it's funny, a lot of the nonprofit entities are named after their son or their daughter. Right. Olivia's Gift, Joshua's Place, David's House. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll see many, many names like that, that um, Benjamin's Hope, and they're all emerging excellent nonprofits that want to do supportive housing in a creative way, but they need to somehow get better technical assistance. Right. And maybe some kind of a website or something, at least, where yes. they can look up that kind of information. I'm thinking about doing that with our website and our law firm, is creating mm-hmm. a, a housing section where we can put links and we can help people find each other. and we can Right. Yeah, another uh, another episode. Uh, I'm sorry, another uh, area where you uh, talk about uh, assistance and uh, uh, help need is obtaining uh, social social security benefits and uh, the problems that can arise there if the paperwork or the documents aren't filled out correctly. Yes, I mean that's one aspect of disability law where um, there are quite a few attorneys and. You probably see them advertising on TV a lot now that uh, they specialize even nationally in doing Social Security disability appeals. Mm-hmm. Social Security runs two programs. They run a Social Security Disability Insurance Program, SSDI. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's for people who have paid into the Social Security system, but now they're not able to work and they can potentially get disability benefits at any age uh, uh, if it's a severe enough impairment. But what about the people that didn't pay into the Social Security system? They, uh, 
still have a severe impairment, still need some help, and they have another program there called SSI, Supplemental Security Income. Mm -hmm. And that has a lot of the same rules over how severe it has to be before they'll give benefits, but it has completely different rules as to how you get it. And in the SSI program, you have to have very low income and very low assets in the bank. You can't have, again, more than $2,000 of countable resources and still be on SSI. So um, we help advocating first proving that it's a severe enough impairment. That's step one for both programs. Mm -hmm. But then once if they're eligible for SSI, sometimes we have to advocate to make sure that the resources in their pocket uh, fit within the rules of the SSI program for them to get SSI. Okay. Is it a drawn-out process, or does it take a while, or just something you need to be on top of uh, as uh, it goes? You know, there's a myth out there that uh, nobody ever gets approved Social Security or SSI on the first application. That mm-hmm. You always have to appeal. Right. That's not true. I mean, what it is is it depends on the medical documentation. And, and the Social Security people don't just make decisions based on somebody's bald statement that the person is disabled. They mm-hmm have to see signs, symptoms, and laboratory findings, that's their terminology, mm-hmm. over uh, to show that they have a, a severe enough impairment to not be able to work or not be able to do competitive employment. You can work some and get these benefits, but, mm-hmm. uh, again, the uh, rules for SSI and SSDI are different with regard to work. But uh, it has to show that the, the medical documentation documentation or the psychological reports have to show a severe enough impairment. Mm-hmm. That's what lawyers like our office, what we do is help people analyze what the doctors are saying and see if it is severe enough and under the rules that Social Security has set out. If it's not severe enough, you know, they're probably not going to get benefits, but if it is, they will get it on the first application. Mm-hmm. And uh, For example, somebody with mental retardation. Um, a lot goes on IQ when they look at the severity of the impairment. Um, if somebody's IQ is over 70, it gets to be a harder and harder case. If somebody's IQ is less than 60, mm-hmm. it uh, gets to be a fairly simple case. Um, if somebody has Down syndrome, that's laid out in the rules as being almost a sure thing that you're going to be considered severe enough no matter what your IQ says. So right. you have to know those rules, and you have to be able to apply it to a given individual. Right. Okay. And then, of course, autism and cerebral palsy and other problems uh, yeah. have their own individual qualifications. That's right. And, you know, Social Security has done so much better now on explaining all this online. Under, If you go to the Social Security website, ssa.gov, mm-hmm. and you noodle through it to get to the disability section, you'll, you can actually find exactly what rules they apply when they see if it's a severe enough impairment. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then if the doctors, the more the doctor uses the, the wording that's been recognized by Social Security and backs it up with its, their evaluations and their signs and symptoms and laboratory findings, the more likely you're going to be able to get benefits. Right. 
Well, that's great stuff to know. Um, and now you mentioned that you have a website, so we should yes, probably I get mean, that it's out. It's a website that's mm-hmm. uh, just for our law firm. Mm-hmm. There's two of us in the law firm. It's a very small firm, but right. the mm-hmm. name of the website is, uh, is the name of our two attorneys. It's Blau, B-L-A-U-W, mm-hmm. KirkpatrickLaw.com. Mm-hmm. BlauKirkpatrickLaw.com. Right, and that's for you and your associate, Sarah Kirkpatrick. Yep. Okay. Sarah's uh, been working with me for almost a year now, and mm-hmm. she comes out of having worked uh, in various settings, including the the VA in Washington, D.C., and the mm-hmm. Michigan Court of Appeals, but she's quite... Uh, uh, there, there's a profile for each of us on our website that you can just take a look at. Right. Okay. Well, that's great. And now, um, you know, we're here in Michigan, of course, and uh, there are other uh, laws depending upon what state you're in. So obviously someone who is listening to this podcast but isn't in Michigan uh, won't be able to ask specific questions regarding their state. Is there any kind of a resource or a place uh, where people can find out attorneys in their area that might specialize in the same sort of thing? Well, you know, there's a lot of new networks of uh, attorneys and advocates around the nation that work on disability law, and it's it's a huge area. I, mm-hmm. the one that I think is quite useful is there's a, a website for the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys, mm-hmm. which stands for which uh, goes by NALA, N A E L A dot org. But if you look at NALA, N-A-E-L-A dot org, it actually has a, an attorney directory on their website for finding a, a person in your state. Ah, great. Um, and it says elder law in their name, but they do the kind of disability uh, law for younger people with severe impairments that I do also. So ah, okay. that uh, is a good site. And I'm not connected with them, so I don't speak for them, but I right. think uh, it's one site that's online. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another uh, group of or an association of disability attorneys called SpecialNeedsAlliance.org mm-hmm. that does again has uh, resources online for families with kids with disabilities. And there's another one that I thought was quite uh, useful for finding attorneys in any given state. Uh, national law, federal law, sets up this thing uh, called the the network of protection and advocacy mm-hmm. it's actually a federal program but it, now they have a website that's called the national disability rights network mm. and if you go to that if you google national disability rights network there's actually a map that you can click on to find a, a protection and advocacy uh, entity in your state ah. and those are uh offices that often keep tabs of who does disability law in your state. Oh, that's great. So it's a way of finding uh, somebody who really knows the the laws of your state. Okay. Uh, Some of these things apply nationwide. So the general rules on trust tend to be quite generic, Mm -hmm. but there is a variation in special needs trust from state to state. Mm There. Some of the Medicaid rules, and again, it's based on federal law, but every state has its own Medicaid uh, piece of it that uh, may differ from state to state. So it is good to try to find an attorney in your own state. Right. 
Right. Okay. Well, I'll make sure that there are links to all those sites um, on the podcast page when we put this up online. Great. But that's that's great. Okay. Well, I want to thank you so much for talking. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you to us today. I, I appreciate the chance to uh, to participate. Right. I, oh, I should, as mm-hmm. in lawyers will often do. Yeah. I'm going to put a disclaimer at the end. Okay. That uh, anything I've said is somewhat general, and you always have to seek individual advice about your specific situation in your state Mm -hmm. because what I may have said uh, in a generic way here may not apply to your state. So Mm -hmm. that's my uh, legal disclaimer. That was attorney Dan Blau of Grand Rapids, Michigan. He and his associate Sarah Kirkpatrick specialize in legal assistance for people with disabilities and parents of children with disabilities and special needs with their firm, Blau Kirkpatrick Law. I'd like to thank Dan for giving some great advice on all the legal issues we face as parents of special needs kids. For more information, you can visit his firm's website, BlauKirkpatrickLaw.com. That's B-L-A-U-W-K-I-R-K-P-A-T-R-I-C-K-Law.com. Or you can click on the link for their firm that's on the page of this podcast on our website. You'll also find links to the other websites we discussed. And that's it for this episode of Special Parents Confidential, podcast number two. I'm John Pellegrini. Thanks for listening.